Thank you, everyone and anyone, for tuning in to Ladies of London Hacking Society podcast. This is Eliza May Austin being incredibly fucking cheesy on a podcast. We have with us Kevin Fielder from Just Eat, who is the awesome CISO there who has built security from the ground up. We've also got a room full of randomers. I'm joking, they're not. We've got Linda Barber, who's on the management team for the Hacking Society. We've got Stephen Ridgway, also on the management team. We've got Dida Galecki, otherwise known as Didi who is the latest member of the Hacking Society team. We have Annabelle Berry, the CEO of Sapphire, who is on our unofficial advisory board, which we are trying to make official. We've also got David Mansfield, who is the head of cyber recruiting for Cyber Team, which is a recruitment consultancy. So we're just basically going to have a random question and answer session with Kevin Fielder, because why not? Bear in mind, We've been at a conference all day, so we're all a little bit drunk, apart from Kevin, who's sober, so prepare to be harassed, Kevin. Okay, I look forward to it. Okay, great. So first question, and I'm just pulling this totally out of the back end of my brain. So what was it about Ladies of London Hacking Society that made you interested in contributing to its success? Oh, awesome. Yeah, it seems like a really good kind of way of helping people get into security. And like I think when we first talked about it, I think I talked to you about it kind of before your first ever event. There's a lot of kind of female orientated things that do kind of general training or GRC or whatever, but there's not a lot of kind of things helping women get into security from kind of a technical perspective. So it's kind of that that's just a more interesting thing than, than a lot of other areas. And it's not a thousand percent exclusive like women. It's just late women focused, but will help anyone. Yeah, we are very female centric, not female exclusive. So we have guys like you and David here and Stephen as well, who are welcome to attend um, because... You guys contribute to the running of the society. So some of us today, me, David and Annabelle, we went to, and Linda, we went to a conference today and it was all about various different aspects of security. And we had Frank Abignail there, who was the guy from Catch Me If You Can, pretty interesting guy. And I was just wondering, is there anything that you try and get away with day to day that is you shouldn't be doing? So for example, me personally, When I was really poor, I would try and get away with not paying on the train and it works, right? And now that I'm a CEO and I'm no longer like shit broke, I still try and get away with not paying on the train. Is there any, is there like one little thing in life that you try and get away with, like hacker mentality? Of course not. I'm 100% good. (laughs) I never do bad things. Although I do sometimes steal teaspoons from restaurants and events. Why? Just because you can. Just to to prove to yourself that you've still got it. Yeah, if you can get away with it. So yeah, that's probably my dark secret. I'm a teaspoon thief. (laughs) Awesome. So when you go to a company that doesn't really have much security maturity, what's the top um, things that you're looking at to improve first? Like what's the top of your bucket list that you want to sort of bring to the table once you get in there? I think there's, I don't approach with what you should be doing. You want to go and understand what they need. So every company will have some similar problems, but if you kind of go in and go, you should do this, this, and this. You're like doing it totally wrong because no one's going to A, A, respect you and B, you'll probably get it wrong. So you want to go in and spend the first little bit of time understanding a bit about the business, understanding the challenges, understanding their goals, understanding how they want to work. And then you can start building a program and a team to deliver the right security for that company. There may be the odd burning fire that you have to kind of deal with very quickly. But if you start trying to do all of the, you know, here's my checklist or here's what, you know, NIST says or here's yeah. what the CIS say or whatever else and just bolt it in somewhere, you won't get it right and you probably will try and do it in ways that just get people's backs up. So you want to kind of build relationships and get people on side first and then start delivering things to help them. Okay, awesome. That's a really good answer, actually. 
How do you balance preventive and detective controls? So I'm a super big proponent on understanding stuff before you block it. So like everywhere has a bunch of stuff that block things like firewalls and anti-malware and whatever else. But in terms of process and blocking things, our whole strategy is around understand the environment, monitor the environment, detect, respond. And then once you understand stuff, you can then start blocking things without breaking the business. So if you start doing the prevent first, you'll break a bunch of processes. Everyone will hate you. Everyone will work around you. And if, if you're in kind of an org that's more agile, more cloud, more DevOpsy, people are used to being empowered. So they will not only want to go around you, they'll be able to, because that's just how they work. So fundamentally, you need to kind of get them on side, understand stuff, respond real quick, and then do the kind of friend to piece once you know what you're doing. I have another question. Go for it. Say a bit louder. So there is now a view that every security person should know how to code. What do you think about that? I think it depends on your role. So yeah, certainly there's a whole bunch of stuff around automating and scripting and things. And obviously you've got, when you're in, if you're in an AppSec space, you're going to be, have to understand code and how to work with engineers. If you're in kind of cloud infrastructure, it's going to depend on your organization. So if you're at the kind of cloudy automation end, you're probably going to need to do some scripting and infrastructure as code and that kind of stuff. So kind of probably more the kind of, you know, Ansible puppet scripting things rather than necessarily being like a coder. In the ops world, it's going to, again, depend on what you're looking at. So we have some scripting and development capability in our ops team to kind of build tools and help integrate tools. But also we have people who are really good at investigations and responding to incidents and things, and they don't need to know how to code necessarily. So I don't think everyone should. I think there's that blending of infrastructure as code, but I also think that the infrastructure code piece is more scripting languages rather than necessarily kind of, I'm building an app with Java or .NET or something. Yeah. So it depends on your role. Okay, great. So Justy is really unique by design. So for instance, it's kind of e-commerce. So at the same time, it's sort of a man in the middle sort of business between the consumer and the and the provider of a service. So the restaurant and, and the purchaser. So what sort of unique challenges do you think um, Justy are facing that more traditional companies that sell a product are facing? So I think a lot of it is the same as any company that's kind of on the internet. So I think the, the challenge we're facing are a bit different from some more because of how we do things rather than necessarily kind of where, you know, being a marketplace versus a retailer versus whatever else. But it's, it's easy to forget how kind of lucky we are to be working there because it's, it's we're a cloud native company, you know, pretty much all in with cloud. There's, there's almost no on-prem stuff outside of kind of laptops and printers and things. We're very DevOps agile. You know, we're not quite, you know, we, we always go, oh, we're not quite a Netflix or something. But, you know, there's not many companies that are actually doing the stuff we're doing. So, you know, you try to get people who have got really strong expertise in pipelines and DevOps and, you know, 50, 100 releases a day and all those kind of things. There's not a lot of things in that space. So I think it's a challenge around the fact it's a fast moving organization across a bunch of cloud providers where from a security perspective, you've got to plug into how think the business is working and how engineering is working. So we can't be, we'll do a code review and tell you in a few days whether your app's secure mm. or any of those kind of sort of more traditional things. It's all, you've got to tell, tell people now and you've got to be part of that process and part of the pipeline and part of the release processes. So it's much more about kind of speed, speed and complexity are the sort of big challenges. Okay, brilliant, brilliant answer. That's something I've wanted to really understand for a while actually because companies like Just Eat and Uber and Airbnb, for example, that don't have a particular premises other than head office, obviously, and they don't have anything in particular that's tangible that they sell, but it's all sort of service-based. And I think that's quite interesting the way that the industry's having to sort of move along with that. So just on another note, going into more of a diversity question because we are ladies of London Hacking Society after all. 
Um, myself and Annabelle Berry, who's also sat in the room, we were on a diversity panel this morning, but we were a panel of only females. And I know me and you have had sort of discussions in the past over a drink about how isolating an opinion benefits no one. That's common sense. So like I always say, if you want to combat racism, don't speak to one colour. If you want to combat sexism, don't speak to one sex. So how are you finding it being a white male in a position of authority in today's world when that is often by a lot of different groups and a lot of different people seen as the Antichrist? How are you dealing with that? I don't really take any notice of that, to be honest. So I think, you know, my, as, as, as you know, from us, us talking about it, my kind of whole philosophy and this stuff is to try and make my team an awesome place to work for anyone. Well, this so. is it, isn't it? It's like if you preach about diversity you get the slap around the face of white privilege or male privilege or whatever. So that almost shuts you up and puts you out of the conversation. And we need men to be in the conversation in order to expand diversity because you're in the position of power. So um, if we just have women talking amongst themselves about opportunities in cybersecurity, that's not going to actually get us anywhere. Whereas if we bring men in and people like yourself that want to be in that conversation, that embodies a lot of power. So I suppose a better question is, how would you encourage other men to get engaged in that conversation? I think it's just about being kind of open and realising that, you know, the diversity piece is not about men or women or sexual orientation or religion or anything else. It's about having different ways of thinking and that will encompass all of those. So you need to kind of have, you will need to want that and you, you need to want to be challenged. I think this is the big thing that some people don't get on with. So it's, it's you having a diverse team will have people who think differently to you. So when I first, my first chunk of time at Just Eat was a bit of the Kev show. So the team was really small. I came in to kind of give a plan and strategy and it's really obvious what we should be doing. So it's like great fun, right? Everything we're doing was what I said we should be doing. And there wasn't too much argument because it's all really obvious stuff. But as we built out and got a lot of these kind of baseline things in place and I've built out a better team and the people with kind of more expertise, I don't want to be the person making those decisions because I'll get a much better outcome for the business and for my team by having other people telling me what we should be doing. So I always say to my, the people in the team, if anyone is probably you know, a mid-level engineer or above in a specialism, it's probably way better than I am in that area. Yeah. So I, I want them to be telling me what to do. I, I shouldn't be the one making the calls. I should be the one getting the support for the calls and taking the heat and doing all the kind of CSOE stuff while I've got experts doing awesome work and telling me what awesome work needs to happen. So I think you need to just have that well, kind of strayed a little bit, but it's fundamentally that you have to, as, a, as a, a leader of a team, want to be challenged and want people in your team who are better than you. I like the fact that you strayed, actually, because that, I think that leads us on to a really interesting topic around leadership and cybersecurity. And we all know within the industry that burnout is a big problem and a lot of the retention rates being so negative is due to a result of burnout. So yeah, that leads us on to like a really important question, actually. I think burnout is a big problem in the industry. And because what we do, whether you're on the defense or the offense, it's not very tangible in terms of we can't say, okay, this has been complete. You have successfully penetrated this environment and you finished, or you've successfully defended this environment and you finished. There isn't an end point. So people keep going and that that cutoff point never comes. I think that is one of the contributing factors to burnout. So I just wanted to bring in Stephen to ask a question. So Stephen, do you have a question that's kind of on the remit of burnout for Kevin? Yeah, um, so I think, I think the two of us have worked at a reasonably senior level in cyber for a while now. So I know I've developed sort of strategies to spot when 
teams are you know really getting pushed to the limits of what they can do what sort of things do you do in that arena because i know you've got a, a reasonably small but really well motivated team um, so how do you manage that cutoff point between them being motivated and really keen and actually putting in so much effort and so much time that they um overdo it um, yeah so i think it's, it's you know i'm lucky enough to have kind of a really good small leadership team now that helps me with that but it's about you know, and we, we know there's ebbs and flows, so especially in like the op space, you know, you'll have an incident or an issue and it's all hands to the pump for a while dealing with it. And it might be, you know, drag on for a longer period than you hope because you need something fixed in an application or whatever before the issue goes away. So it's kind of around that, that understanding those ebbs and flows and creating, having the environment where people are treated like adults. So, so I, I'm, you know, I, I fundamentally don't care where my team are physically and I don't mind if what hours they're working as long as they're doing what they need to be doing. And I try to promote that across the teams. We have a really flexible environment in that sense. So you'll have some periods when you're all has the pump, pump, but then another time it's like, you know, I've got a doctor appointment, dentist appointment, or I need to take a morning off, I need some time off and loo, whatever else it is. And it's like, yeah, go for your life. And it's, you know, as long as their manager knows where they are, there's that kind of promoting that, that side of things. We also, I, I check up on my, the people who report to me pretty regularly and they do the same for their people. So it's about just kind of keeping an eye on people talking, understanding how people are getting on and, and also understanding how people are different so we have people you know within the team who have anxiety or people who've gone through some physical health issues or whatever else and it's just staying close to those things and supporting people through it i suppose um, it's that cognitive diversity that matters isn't it the diversity of thought and having people that report to you that are willing to question you that mm. keeps you on the right footing really isn't it because if everyone just agreed with you and no one differed from the way that you think you could quite easily go down the wrong path yeah, so it's, it's, there's kind of two bits here, isn't it? There? There's the bit around kind of pastoral care for your team and yourself, right? It's really easy. You know, I, I, I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things you need in security and probably other high-stress jobs, but obviously security is what I know, to make to be successful. One of them is you've got to love it. So you've got to love, love doing it, which means we don't mind going the extra mile and we don't mind doing stuff because we genuinely enjoy what we're doing. And the other thing is you need a bit of balance. So whether that's family or gym or whatever you know it can be stamp collecting whatever it is you need some kind of balance and hobbies and things that you do that take you away from work so even if you love it you can't be thinking about it all the time so you need some that that balance and then yeah you need a team that's kind of got a variety of things you know that I, I i don't understand how some of the people in my team think but i do my best to kind of respect it and put themselves in their position like i was doing a one-to-one yesterday with one of the guys he's completely super like normal but he's a bit less, like, I'm quite excitable. And I'm like, yeah, I love it. We should be doing this, we should be doing that and get, get really excited about things. He's super measured. And and I've had to really learn that. So when he's like, hey, I'm really into this. It's great. I'm, I'm doing great. He, he'll be talking to me like this. And I'm like, is that true? Because I'd be like really excited. And I've, I actually said to him, I've got to, you know, one of the learnings I've had to do is I've got to understand that you're different from me. So it's, it's that kind of understanding how other people and what, what to look for in them and, and how you don't want everyone like you i mean it'd be a mental team if everyone was like me right who wants it yeah, just be like a lot of people talking really fast and carnage but you, know, you don't want everyone to be like you but you have to understand when they're not like you there i'm really happy or there i'm good or there i'm doing really well doesn't necessarily look like you're unhappy yeah so yeah see so it's, it's yeah and it's that i guess those two are kind of linked that you get the different thoughts and the different ways of thinking which gives you better outcomes but it also gives you interesting pastoral care because you've got to understand them to know how people are doing mm-hmm. I think that, that raises another couple of really interesting questions. I mean, very clearly, what you've done at Just Eat is at the forefront of what's going on. I mean, a lot of organisations in the, in the industry are, are not at that point. And I know I've had some real challenges in the past getting the uh, executive level in an organisation 
to think along those lines. You know, I've worked for organizations that measure your value by how many hours you're sat at your desk and all sorts of other you know, utterly useless things. How did you find uh, that when you were taking over the role and building the team um, in Just Eat? Was there a, a natural inclination for the senior management team to just get it? Or did you have to work on that? So it's a, it's a pretty good place to work that does, yeah, we've got quite a lot of people who've been there a while because people are treated well and it's a good place like that. But I guess I almost kind of, I, I thought that the first question about kind of things you get away with was going to go down the work route at the start, which was I've, I've kind of done, run my team how I want to run it. And one of the good things for me about Just Eat and where we are is not only is it a good place to work, but I'm fundamentally allowed to kind of run the team in the way that works for us a lot in a lot of times. So you know, as I've, when I've talked about kind of us working in an agile manner and everything else, the rest of the business is agile, but I think you can run a security team as an agile team, regardless of where you are and have a great outcome. So I think it's up to us as leaders to look after our team in the best way we can. So, you know, I was one of the first people, I don't you know, there may be a few others, I don't know, but one of the first people around, I've hired a guy, Stu, everyone knows Stu, right? He's in Edinburgh. So I've, I've proven that I can have people entirely remote or mostly remote and it works really well because I've got people in London, Bristol, Winnipeg. So they're all over the place anyway. So we're doing you know, remote working. We're letting people who need to work from home as much as they want to. We're pretty flexible with hours and times. You know, the ops people, I like to have an ops person or two in the office, just because especially in the London office, that's where the exec asks if an issue happens and like, what's going on? You need someone there. So with those people, I often try to, I try to kind of push a, let's have a few people in London office all the time, especially, and other offices just because when something goes wrong, there's someone there to pick it up or someone that someone can physically go to. But outside of that, it's, it's pretty relaxed. So you know, and even hiring. So we have a people team who are, who are really good, but they let, unless it's a managerial position, they don't even get involved in the hiring process. So it's just down to kind of us finding the right people and our team interviewing them. So we're, we're allowed to build the team and run the team pretty much as we want. And I think probably across the business that allows managers to run their teams really well. Yeah, I think that also raises another very interesting point. How have you found recruitment and the way that you put together job descriptions and um, how that impacts the people that apply for roles? Yeah, so I've I've... I got caught out recently because I didn't check a couple that went out the door, but I'm a massive promoter of really small job specs because you don't need a big job spec. I did a LinkedIn post a while ago. They got quite a lot of chat about it, but it's, you know, we won the last ops people we hired. I think the job spec I put out was need a junior mid analyst to join our ops team, ideally with some Splunk experience, some cloud experience and some instant response. I think that was like, yeah. So, you know, and and people put, well, you've got to put all the stuff about your company and whatever else. If you're applying to a company, Look on our website. I mean, if you're applying to Just Eat, you know what you're getting into because you'll have looked us up a little bit. So I'd be well, interested to know, like, did you get an increase in response, like so, applicants, more than you would traditionally if you put the whole sort of JD out there? Yeah, I think so. And I guess one of the things that I learned from the the whole kind of thing, I think obviously one part of that question is around the fact that there's the stats around women tend to want to have all of the skills in the spec, whereas men will go, oh, I've got some of those, I'll have a flyer at that. So yeah. having a big spec just puts women especially off applying, right? So, but it also puts them off telling you about it. So the couple of specs went out recently that I hadn't checked, had a bunch of stuff on. I was like, that's garbage. Let's shrink them once I saw them. And that was on me. But I got the feedback from Sabi and my team who knows some of the other ladies in, in the hacking society that they said the job specs were like ridiculous and big, but they didn't tell me, even though I'm kind of there and I'm like, hey, chat to me, it's cool. Tell me what you think. None of them spoke up, but they told Sabi, who is another lady who then works in my team, who told me. So then I was like, oh my God, they are garbage. Let's make them smaller and wow. shrunk them down. So, but it shows that not only do women not apply, even when you're kind of semi-engaged with them, they They're don't even tell you that we think, is that job spec real? Do you want all their skills? So it, I think don't underestimate how important having a good job spec is. So that's um, quite interesting that it yeah. took having a woman in your team 
to be engaged with other women that were applying for them to feed back to her for the, mm. her to then feed back to her. That's really interesting. But then you saw actually. you saw my post in the jobs thing on the, the there's a for those who don't know there's a, there's a Slack for the Ladies and Hack Society and there's a jobs Slack channel. So I then redid them and posted, hey, you know, please tell me in future. But so it's getting that engagement is really important. And if people are too, I don't know whether it, you know whether it's scared or they just don't want to, they're not going to speak up, especially maybe for the more junior roles. Having that job spec, you won't even know it's putting people off because they won't tell you. They just won't talk to you about it. So wow. yeah. yeah, having that, you know, and and I'm I'd challenge anyone to kind of say you need more than a few things on the spec. And you might put a few kind of in the nice to haves, but make it really clear they're nice to haves, right? So go here's the five things we need. Like, you know who we are. We're a cool company. We do lots of DevOps, Agile, blah, easy. Here's the kind of four or five skills we need. And, and one of them is always like, want to be part of our team. So for me, it's especially junior mid stuff. It's super keen to learn, want to be part of our team, right? And then mm. ideally a bit of kind of some of the tech we use or some experience that means you can dive in a bit more quickly. And then there'll be some nice to haves. But the, the actual spec, the requirements are really small. Well, that's like half yeah. the point of a probationary period, isn't it? See how quickly you pick well, up what's, no, what's on offer. I don't. I think that's part of. I think more. I guess they. I'm not sure they necessarily work out because you don't necessarily know what how someone's going to pan out in a year anyway. And also, I think the interview process needs to catch a lot of that. So, um, how yeah, we're really big on. You know, it's a really simple process, like two step for most people. But it's it'll be a good long interview with the people in your team. So you'll meet some of the people in the team yeah. and your manager. They'll have a really good chat with you about ways of working in the company, what you want to know, those kind of things. So we've not had many, if any, I don't think we've had any people fail out the door from through our, for our hiring process. There've been now, there's been people who kind of move on after a while, but yeah, it's it's the process seems to work well at getting people who want to fit in the team and be part of our team. So awesome. Yeah. So. Just based on what we were just speaking about with Stephen there, about job descriptions, I'm really keen to get David in the conversation because David heads up the um, cyber recruitment arm of Cyber Team. So have you got a question? Is it recruitment related? You know, what what do you want to ask Kevin? Yeah, I've got a question. It's not entirely recruitment related because I know Kevin touched upon measuring the success of his teams. I'd be keen to understand what the metric of how does success look like for you? within a security team because it's not always so easy to to track where it might be in you know dev teams or other teams you know within a security yeah. team what does success look like to you so yeah so i mean it is that's that's measuring security is like it's a really hard challenge right because yeah. a lot of it's like didn't get hacked yeah awesome right so you know same as like you know if the press want to talk to me it's usually not because we've had really good figures it's because something <laughs> bad's happened so we have a bunch of kind of internal metrics around you know how much of the estate we're monitoring how how well certain tools deployed how Effort, what their efficacy is that kind of stuff and then obviously that turns into kind of like risk reports of kind of you know mm-hmm. red amber green for certain areas of business or for data leakage or whatever else but we've also got a bunch of soft soft measures that i think are, equ- are probably equally more important so in terms of kind of engagement with us that kind of thing you know how often are the team being harassed by people in the business so, you know how much how, how often do people come and ask us questions those like soft things i think are probably as or more important than a lot of the kind of the hard metrics which don't necessarily tell you how secure you are anyway right you do you know, vulnerability scan and we've we've patched 87 percent of vulnerabilities what does that really mean yeah you, know, you could if unless you've patched 100 percent and everything's 100 percent, you can still get breached right so a lot of these things mm-hmm. are kind of yeah it looks like you're making progress but they don't necessarily actually define de- define how likely you are or not to be breached right but no i really like the kind of softer ones around kind of team engagement are people coming back to us do people come you know after you've had an engagement with the team in future do you come and ask us questions and again right so we had an issue with a Last year and a bit ago, we had an issue with kind of a marketing site that was done by an external company and it hadn't been security checked and had a problem. And my team could have been traditional security. Oh, you've made a mistake. Why didn't you come to us? But they engaged really well with the, with the marketing team. 
they help them fix the problem and get it back online really quickly. This year, when they were doing the same thing, they came to us before and said, hey, we're doing this thing again. Can you guys help us make sure we don't make any mistakes? So that, for me, was a huge win. So those kind of business engagement and engagement with other teams are, for me, huge metrics. That, that you know They're soft and kind of a bit, you know, not quite as hard as is that deployed everywhere or is that patched. But those kind of things where is your business engaged with you, are people talking to your team, I think probably really important and often overlooked. And you know, if you look at kind of frameworks like NIST or CIS or whatever, they don't really talk about kind of cultural engagement. They just talk about like all the traditional stuff like patching, management, configuration, compliance, all those things, which are really important. But they don't really measure how much your business cares about security. Awesome. Thanks for that question, David. It was great. Well, those benefits, they're good for the staff as well, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, you know, it's sometimes the staff, like, they need to be engaged on that basis as well. So when you talk about those kind of benefits, I think that would be rewarding to the staff as well. As we, we know, it's hard to retain good people in security. You know, f- from your standpoint, does rewarding your staff for that success help you to retain good staff in the business? Yeah, I mean, considering how frothy the security market is, we've had relatively low turnover. We've had some turnover, and especially as you grow, you get more because we're like, I think when our team's full, it's about 24, 25 people now. So it's a reasonable sized team. So there's going to be some churn naturally as, as people have been there a while. But we've got you know, relatively low levels of churn in terms of time and whatever else. And yeah, I think, you know, and it's, it's the reward is kind of, a lot of it's the, again, the softer stuff. So, you know, people obviously all want more money and bonuses and whatever else. But the reality is that doesn't keep people for long. You know, people will sometimes move for money. I had someone in my Canadian team got literally almost a double of his salary to go and work in sales for a company. You know, oh, there's no way I could keep with that. And, and he had a family on his, on the way and that. So that level of extra cash was enough to make him move as a, as a cash thing. But for most people, it's, it's the, you know, just saying thanks. You know, the fact that, you know, our team appreciates people we do our best to look after them and, and you know whether it's training or you know we have we again we have kind of certain rules like everyone has five days a year they can use for training and stuff outside of going on approved courses just for like going to conference or whatever else but it, a lot of that stuff's managed discretion so we can let people have a bit more stuff if they you know if someone's smashing work and they want to go and do some more training or then spend a bit of time in immersive labs or those kind of things we you know that's at our discretion same as a bit like the kind of flexible working whatever else we can do quite a lot to try and give the team as good a as good, a, as good a kind of role and, and career growth as possible. Um, and one of the areas we really focus on is, is kind of in the ops team. So obviously in secure operations, you often have quite a lot of turnover because it's like ticket, 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 ticket. And that's really dull. So in our, our secure operations team, it doesn't always work because if there's a lot of stuff going on, they have to deal with issues. But in reality, we, we have, a, a, there's, there's 10 people in SecOps and there'll be two to four of them on kind of unplanned work in any given sprint. And then the others get to work on kind of projects and other things. So we try and give even in the ops world kind of projects and things where they can say, I own that, I delivered that, rather than just being a pure kind of ops instant response team. So we do, you know, it's not a perfect thing, but we do as much as we can to keep the team engaged and give them career advancement and stuff. Awesome. Great. Thanks, David. So you just commented on Immersive Labs there in your brief conversation with David. Immersive Labs, as you know, they provide all of the lab content for LHS. They do that free of charge because they completely support what we're doing, which is absolutely fantastic. And the content that they deliver for us is amazing and absolutely we can't fault it but we are obviously biased so what how are you finding immersive labs from a professional standpoint when you've deployed it throughout the the security team so yes we've got a few of our, our people using it already and some more people queuing up to get it so i've got to get some more licenses please give me a discount um, <laughs> but no, it's really good the guy the team really like it so we initially kind of thought it'd be great for the kind of junior mid people as well but there's some of the more senior people in the team want to play with it as, as, in addition so 
I think it's it's it can help with kind of maintaining certifications as well as kind of being good for training. So, and I think they're expanding out beyond security teams as well. So oh, really okay. the people just the people in my team really like it and are making quite a lot of use of it. So yeah, it's definitely definitely worthwhile. And it's a, it's a good way to give your team kind of easy training engagement because they can do it whenever they want. Same as all the kind of awareness y capture flag yeah. platforms, right? It's you know, they can you know, if they can want a bit of training of a lunchtime or of an evening or whatever else, it's just easy for them to kind of pick and choose when they do stuff without needing I want to go to a course for like a week or whatever. Okay. So, yeah. That's really great. Good. That's really cool. It's self directed as well, which is which is awesome. But this one do you want to ask it? Okay. Previously being a home worker how do you control when you have people that work for you of different disciplines, of different types of people and different personalities? How do you control and manage home working? Because as a home worker, I'm very disciplined because I'm like, yeah, get my kids up, drop them off, do the stuff I need to do, get on work until my husband comes home. And I do like a, probably a longer day than I do in the office. How do you discipline people that work for you that want home working, but perhaps have never home worked? It's the same as in the office. So we're very much kind of an outcomes focused team. So it's not about, are you there from nine to five thirty, right? It's about, are you doing great work? Are you engaged? People need to be engaged in, are you delivering what you said you deliver? So it's, it's measuring those kind of things. You know, like I say, I've got, I've got kind of quite a few people who work from home a lot. Like mm-hmm. I work from home a bit as well. But you can you can tell yeah when someone says they'll do things are they getting done when they say they're going to be at meetings are they in meetings and contributing you know when there's stuff their team's delivering is it is it getting delivered and you'll soon find out if it's not right because a stuff doesn't happen other people in the team are going to go and like complaining stuff's not happening etc so same as when someone's in the office you can easily turn up the office and sit there twiddling your thumbs for like eight hours like noodling on YouTube whatever and you know I'm not there so I can't see so you're in the corner people can't necessarily see what you're doing you go out for a nice long wander for lunch whatever else there's people who are professional like slackers in the office that so it's not it's not about presenteeism it's about delivery and engagement and i don't think that necessarily you know you've got to keep an eye on if people are you probably got to keep an eye the other way with a lot of people in security which is are you doing too much mm-hmm. you know is someone working all hours are, are they smashing work out at two in the morning when they should be asleep whatever else you've got you've got to do both things and again it's it's, it's how people want to work so i was, I was interviewing a, a guy earlier this week for one of our cloud roles and he's He's, he'll be mostly remote and he was like well I can't work in quite like working quite late so I was like well if you want to as long as you're attending meetings you need to if you want to start at two in the afternoon and work till 10 at night go for your life if that's what works for your schedule and you're delivering work and especially because we've got people in Canada who are six hours behind us seven hours behind us then that's actually really good because you've got team teammates doing the same work as you and you'll be more on their schedule so you know, it's, it's all about how you run the team and how people are engaged and, and delivering not about whether they're at home or in the office so have you found resistance against that approach when you've tried that have you found that perhaps your management above you would say that actually, oh no, everyone has to be here, there and now? Or have you had the flexibility to be able to control that within your own bandwidth? Number two. So yeah, fundamentally I've been, I mean, lucky enough we're quite a forward thinking company anyway, but I, I, I've been kind of left to run the team how we want to run it. So, you know, I, I hired someone completely remote without really asking permission. I just did it and it's worked out. So, you know, you take these bets, I guess as you, when you lead a team or, or an organization, whatever, you take some bets, right? So you take bets on people, on decisions, and sometimes, hopefully most of the time you win, and it's a really great outcome. Occasionally you make a mistake or hire the wrong person or give someone a chance or too many chances when you should have should have dealt with the issue or whatever else. So, you know, you, but, but as long as on balance you're winning the, most of the bets and your team's doing great work, a lot of companies will let you run your team how you need to because you're, you're delivering. So as long as you've got a company that recognizes or an organization that recognizes 
delivery outcomes and success outcomes, not is someone sitting at a desk, mm. then you're winning. But obviously, you know, that's, that's what I guess one of the things, again, is, as security leaders, if we're in an organization that doesn't recognize that, we can help drive that change. So I think being, if you want to lead your team and make an awesome delivery organization out of security, you can help drive change in your organization because you can push, push your luck and, and, and take those bets, even if there's a bit of challenge to it. And by proving it works, you can help gradually change the culture in an organization that's not, that's not there yet because you prove that way of working works. Do you think culturally that has to come from the top? The top has to believing a, not only the homeworking or the, the types of leadership, but the home the, the leadership team have to be focused on actual outcomes rather than where someone is, how many hours they work. Is it on end goals? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if your organisation is very kind of focused on being present in the office and whatever else, then you will have to kind of start pushing against those. So I think, but but again, you know, CISOs and heads of security and whatever else, you're, you're usually in a reasonably senior position in your organization. So you mm-hmm. can be part of that, being an agent of change and make life better for everyone by gradually doing it. And cultural change takes a while, right? So, but every time you make a change or you push those boundaries a little bit and have some success, you can then prove it's working. So the argument against you doing it gets weaker and weaker because you keep proving it. So it might just be you start off if in, a, in a very presenteeism organization that you allow your team a day a week from home. That might be as far as you can push it. But then you show that that improves productivity and morale and people do more work. Because like you said, you're more likely to do more. So you might do something like where, okay, I'm, I'm going to get up. I'll have my breakfast, catch up on things, do some work. Then you might, you know, you may pop to the gym or pick up your kids or go to the dogs or whatever else. Then you come back and do some more work and whatever else. And you actually deliver more that day than the day in the office. So you can show both from the kind of feedback and morale of your team and delivery that works. So it might, yeah, it may take months and months or, you know, even longer with some orgs to get that through. But once you've got that, I've, taken the first step i've proved it works the doors open for you to take another step and half of your team suddenly work from home two days a week or you've hired someone remote or whatever else so you can start chipping away at that so in my organization i was lucky because i could just do it in other organizations you have to be the agent of change and being an agent of cultural change is a long process but you can start making that change and you can help your team so how do you prove that how do you evidence how do you make it evident to organizations of resistance how do you say, well, actually, this works for us or this this is what the future looks like? How do you convince those that are not so reluctant? Well, pre, pre, pre-doing, obviously, you've got a whole bunch of evidence out there that it mm-hmm. works. When you're doing it, you can, if you say, right, okay, everyone on my team can work from home a day a week, you've got the before and after, right? So okay. if, if productivity improves, productivity is better. That's simple. You can demonstrate that, done more tickets, whatever. If morale improves, most companies do some sort of once, twice, three or four times a year, feedback stuff. So if pre-doing it, your team's feedback was this, posting your team's feedback, the morale's gone up, better working conditions, enjoy working here more, evidence. So you have evidence both from delivery and from team morale and feedback from 360s, from whatever surveys your company does, which most do some something to prove it's make it better. So you've got the two, I think those two things then drive your point. Thanks, Linda. Those were some really good questions. So thanks for tonight, Kevin. Really glad that we've had you here. I guess the closing question is, a lot of the things that you've said tonight have been excellent. And they've they've come from a place of working and leading a leadership team within a very forward-thinking organization, Just Eat. However, how would you apply this new way, this new diverse and sort of DevOps agile way of working to a more conservative environment? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think it would be more challenging because I was quite, you know, I was, I was really lucky to get 
the job I've currently got and the opportunity I've had to kind of build the team at, at Just Eat. But I guess it's it's in a more conservative organisation, the challenge would be harder to make the changes. But I think you could potentially make a huge difference to people. And I think you know, security, because you're running your team, you can do some things in your team. It's a bit of the kind of like ask forgiveness later stuff, right? So you can make changes in your team for your people and a bit like the question Linda asked, prove they work and then push it further out into the organization. And you know, cultural change takes a long time and it, it would potentially be more frustrating, but you can make, you know, whether it's, you know, like I touched on, allow your teams to start when start and finish when they want to or do a day a week from home, whatever it is. It can be kind of small things initially. You can just go and hire someone who's remote or whatever and, and you know, ask for, ask for forgiveness after you've done it, right? So you can make these changes and prove things work by a leader. I love the idea of, of, of as a leader of whether it's security or any part of business being that agent of, of change being the person who starts delivering and pushing that cultural change and pushing those boundaries and you have to do it in smaller steps you can't just go all of a sudden my team does whatever they fancy and there's no one in the office because people will not trust you if they're not used to that but you can start adding the flex and adding the change and adding some interesting ways of doing things and, and hiring some different people who don't necessarily look the same or fit into your current organization in inverted commas but and, and then it proves the proofs in the pudding so you keep making these little nibbles and nudges and changes to your team and how you work. And then you show whether it's team morale, team retention, how much work you're delivering. All these things are going up. And by them all going up, you prove it works to other people. And there's going to be other like-minded people in these organizations. I imagine in a lot of conservative organizations, there's a bunch of people who want to drive change and maybe they're frightened to, or maybe they haven't had a voice, or maybe it hasn't been someone who's senior enough to get stuff done. And by you doing it, you enable other people to say, hey, I wish I could do that. Hey, I want to run my team like that. And you're doing it so other people can. They give so it a go. You By, by you yeah. doing it, all of the, anyone who's pent up and wanting to make change but has been too scared to put their head above the parapet can. And I guess I'm lucky that I'm reasonably well-connected and I'm super passionate about what I do. Mm. And hopefully that kind of, I've got a reputation for doing a reasonable job. So I can take a few risks in job and know if it didn't work out, I can probably go and find another job somewhere else. So I can be that person who will be a bit more pushy and push for change and push for improvement and give my team a really good career and hopefully that'll be recognised. Well, fantastic answer. Um, that was really all-encompassing. I hope you that are listening, the one or two of you, are taking notes. So I just want to say thank you so much to everyone that attended tonight, um, especially Kevin, for letting us grill you on the most random question base ever. So Justy, the reason we've got Kevin in is because Justy sponsored us and supported us from our birth essentially they were the first ever hosts of us and they sponsored us financially as well which has gone towards us running the Anon project which those of you that know us know that that is a full day of free training of OSINT security online safety for women that are victims of sex trafficking so thank you very much for Just Eat for doing that and um, also thank you for Travelex who have supplied the space tonight for us to record this drunken podcast um, thank you to Sapphire who have supplied the booze. Thanks, guys, and see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Cheers.